Welcome to episode 54, Family Therapy with LGBTQ Youth by Kyle Bullock, licensed social worker from Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello, everyone. My name is Kyle Bullock. And I'm the manager of LGBTQ services at Garfield Park Behavioral Hospital in Chicago, Illinois. Um, I am a social worker by background, um, and I've worked with LGBTQ youth in several different capacities over my career, from psychotherapy um, to youth development work and after-school programming. Um, So this is definitely a population that's very near and dear to my heart. Um, And... Today, I will be talking about um, doing some family work with LGBTQ youth. Uh, In particular, I'll be going over three different family therapy models that we use um, really on a daily basis at Garfield Park Behavioral Hospital. Um, They are three family therapy models that I think are really uh, foundational really to doing um, good family work with LGBTQ people. So that'll be the focus of the, um, the podcast today is reviewing these three models. Um, <clears throat> this is not a LGBTQ 101. So I know that clearly clinical has um, several, um, you know, uh, LGBTQ um, podcasts currently in its library. And one of those is an LGBTQ kind of one-on-one back to basics. So um, if you are, tuning into this podcast um, and you haven't done any LGBTQ youth work before, um, I would definitely recommend listening to kind of the introduction um, back to basics podcast before listening to this one, because in this um, podcast, I will not be defining terms. I will not be talking about any kind of history or kind of like um, how to do this work appropriately. Um, You know, as far as, you know, it's important to use um, pronouns, it's important to, you know, respect or be non-judgmental when working with um, this population. So I won't be talking about any of that. I'll be going right really into doing good family work. Um, <clears throat> so a couple things I wanted to first uh, start with is tell you a little bit about Garfield Park Behavioral Hospital in Chicago. Um, we have a LGBTQ inpatient unit, which um, from what we can find, um, our hospital has the only um, standalone um, inpatient psych unit for LGBTQ youth in the, in the country. Um, the, the unit is called Polaris. Um, we took the name um, from our North Star, um, you know, because the North Star has been guiding people for centuries on a journey. So we 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 believe um, that you know young people who are LGBTQ are also on their journey. I think we lay a good foundation for um, for that. Um, we serve children and adolescents only, ages 3 to 17, um, and we've been um, serving the Chicagoland communities for the past six years. Um, and if you want to know more information about Garfield Park Behavior Hospital, I'd recommend going to www.garfieldparkhospital.com, and you can see all of our services, and there's a link um, you can click on if you, at the homepage to um read more about our Polaris unit. So before I begin talking about family work, I think it's important just to kind of, um, this is kind of my little soapbox uh, for for doing this work appropriately. Um, Like I kind of mentioned before, people who are going to dedicate a portion of their clinical work to working with really any marginalized uh, and vulnerable population, especially if you're not part of that vulnerable population, like you don't share those um, particular identities. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. It's important for you to really understand um, any power and privilege that you have within your identities. So um, if you remember back to your grad school days, you might remember that um, LGBTQ people are of a marginalized identity, right? Um, they lack a lot of power and privilege. Um, so if you are listening to this and you are not LGBTQ, 
uh, if you're not a gender or sexual minority person, it's important to reflect on your privileges and inherent power that you have in your identities as a potential straight, non-trans or cisgender person. That's, I think, the key essential part, part to do this work well is to really understand your own identities. Um, this work is more than just LGBTQ 101. Um, you have to really dedicate some time um, and study to do this work appropriately. These young people need um, and require your um, commitment um, to your practice, to better your practice, by continuing education. If you remember, I don't know, 10, 20 years ago, there were terms that we're using now in this community that we didn't even use back then. Um, new words, new identities come, you know, into the forefront while old ones slip away. I mean, this, this community is known um, to constantly change language, to change identities, to, um, to invent new things. Um, you know, young people have always been the movers and shakers of driving culture forward. So I think it's important to understand where queer and trans youth are directing us because I think we have a duty as clinicians to to respect and honor where they're at and move with them. Um, so it's really more than just LGBTQ 101 that you need. It's a constant further of your education. Um, <clears throat> I think it's important also to acknowledge your own struggles or challenges that will come up when working with this population. Um, you know, it's okay to get supervision. It's okay to reach out to your local LGBTQ organization and say, hey, I'm working with an agender, um, pansexual young person, um, and you know, this is the clinical presentation. I need help, right? That's okay. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's okay to acknowledge those challenges and those struggles. Um, you know, that's going to make you a better clinician. So um, continue to do that. Also, you have to acknowledge your role as a gatekeeper to mental health, um, particularly for this population. So if you're unfamiliar about what I'm talking about, that is, um, you know, even still currently, there is a practice of um, you know, trans or gender non-conforming people needing to get a letter of um, hormone readiness, right, from a therapist, or they need to be in therapy for X amount of months or years before, you know, usually a non-trans or cisgender um, clinician says, I think you're trans enough. Here's a letter now that you can go receive your hormones, right? That is that is a form of gatekeeping. And and we have a history of that in our profession. So if you're going to be doing this work, you're going to have to understand where you fit um, within that that power dynamic. Um, even, the, even maybe you're working in an organization uh, or a practice that doesn't do that. And actually, maybe you have um, your le letter of readiness is maybe one session. You know, maybe it's an informed consent model, and you know, it's it's. Um, you know, your agency has, has moved away from kind of a prolonged assessment. <clears throat> but it's important to recognize the history and where you're coming um, from um, because that's going to have an impact on your work with this population. Um, two more things I want to say before I jump in is um, honor the lived experiences of LGBTQ young people. You are not the expert. You may think you are because you might have 30 years of clinical experience and and you know young people really, really well. Maybe you know you have, you have advanced degrees in child development. Queer and trans youth are unique. Um, and their lived experience of who they are is their own experience. Um, it's one big takeaway I, I tell um, mental health clinicians, um, psychiatrists even, that we need to honor these experiences, um, celebrate them, um, respect them, um, because these are, um, you know, our young people's, um, you know, way of being and their experience. So I think it's important that... Um, 
that we continue to do that. Um, also, last thing I'll say is don't get caught up in curiosity. I think a lot of us are curious naturally about people. I mean, that's why we're clinicians, right? Is that we are interested in the lives of others. But for queer and trans youth, and particularly, particularly transgender, gender non-conforming young people, there's a lot that we just don't know. And we're, I think, beginning to understand more. But um, I think what clinicians oftentimes fail to do, fail to do is um, you know, not getting caught up in curiosity, right? So, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of research out there that shows that um, uh, even medical providers will ask really inappropriate questions to trans and gender nonconforming people, parts about their body, questions about how they have sex. It's just, it's inappropriate. So, um, you know, you have a wonderful tool uh, available to you called Google or whatever search engine that you use that you can Google these things. Don't always rely, to, you know, in having your um, trans or gender nonconforming client tell you about questions just to, um, or answer questions just to, you know, um, just for your own curiosity. So, um, you know, do that on your own unless the young person is, um, you know, telling you these things on their own free will and they're, they're wanting to. So those are a few of my just little tidbits before um, we get started because I think it's important to, um, to really commit yourself to this work um, because if you're going to do it right, um, you have to um, educate yourself and it's a constant learning. So um, I think you listening to this podcast um, is a definite you know, a step in the right direction. Okay, so um, I want to just quickly talk about um, what is affirming practice. Uh, I think this will kind of set the stage for, um, um, you know, doing doing family work because doing good, um, culturally competent uh, family work, you have to be an affirming practitioner. So, uh, I, I get the honor of providing a one-hour orientation to all of our new hires at Garfield Park Baver Hospital, and I tell them that we need young people on our unit, on the Polaris unit, who are affirming practitioners. And that, that is really just an approach to therapy. It's an approach to nursing. It's an approach to psychiatry, where we value and embrace the positive view of LGBTQ people, their relationships, the negative influences that homophobia, transphobia, uh, transphobia, heterosexism has on the lives of LGBTQ people. And it's really our job as therapists to assist these young people as they face challenges that stem from invalidating environment. That was a quote I picked up. Um, forgot where, but uh, that, was, uh, that was a direct quote. Um, and also, um, affirming practitioners believe that LGBTQ people are a natural and normal reflection of the human experience. If what I just said, um, that LGBTQ people are a natural and normal reflection of the human experience, if you don't believe that to like your core, you really can't be doing this work. Um, you have to believe that and know that an LGBTQ person or a gender and sexual minority person is, is just like anyone who's tall or has brown eyes or, you know, black hair, you know, we're just a, a, a reflection of um, a variation, right, uh, of, of humanity. So I think that's important. Um, and really the last thing I'll, I'll say here on affirming practice is um, affirming practitioners allow their clients to transcend restrictive social constructs. So a social construct is gender, right? Society has created that um, if you were born with certain parts, um, girl parts, quote-unquote, you have to be wrapped in a pink blanket, um, you have to be feminine, you have to be, um, you know, sensitive and nurturing. And if you're 
uh, born with quilt boy parts, you're wrapped in a blue blanket, you are aggressive, you're manly, right? There's nothing in our biology that says that's true. The society has created that. We, you know, we, we know this. this is the fact. <laughs> um, social science has determined this, right? So affirming practitioners allow young people to, to move beyond these boxes, um, these very rigid boxes of you know, in these binaries of you can only be male, you can only be female, you can only be gay, or you can be straight. There's so much gray out there um, that we have to allow young people to break free. Um, I've, I've worked with young people before where our therapy sessions, especially the beginning months, were just, where are you today? Who are you today? And how can I celebrate that? Um, this young person, each time they saw me, it was a different name and a different pronoun. That's fine, because... The therapy space was the only space that they had in their whole world where it was safe for them to do so. School wasn't a place for it. The home environment was definitely not a place for it. So it was the therapy space that we created together that allowed this young person to explore their gender. I allowed them to transcend that. I said, you don't have to be these fit these boxes unless you want to. That's great. I'm here to support you wherever you want to go. Um, I don't think young people get that opportunity very often. So, um, so really, uh, and, and you know what's interesting is that I've seen a lot of clinicians who begin to do this work and allow their patients or patients, clients, whatever name you use, um, to transcend restrictive social constructs is they begin to, to do it themselves because they begin to free up a part of themselves. Um, and I've seen a lot of people blur the lines. It's actually, you know, uh, I think very um, inspiring. Um, so, you know, don't be afraid if you start to transcend your own restrictive social constructs. Okay, so let's talk a little about um, these three models. The first model is called Helping Families to Support Their LGBT Child. Um, this is from the Family Acceptance Project out of San Francisco State University. You can go to familyproject.sfsu.edu. Um, they actually have some great um, free downloadable uh, material um, on their website. Um, so the Family Acceptance Project um, out of San Francisco State, they have um, uh, this model, the Helping Families to Support the LGBT Child. Um, they have downloadable uh, practitioner guides and then a family guide as well. So actually the family guide, um, you can download it in English or Spanish, is um, a guide that we give to every family when they're discharged from our LGBTQ unit at the hospital as good psychoeducation. Because um, the Family Acceptance Project was really the first um, organization or first research project that put... Um, data to um, so you know support what what we already know as clinicians that um, families who reject their children put them at risk for suicide, depression, HIV, uh, and drug use. We know that that makes sense to us. At least it does to me. Um, I'm not going to speak for every clinician out there, but I think we have an innate sense of, about how our families can. Um, impact functioning, right? So they were really the first organization that put um, put that out there and put data to it. Um, and then on the you know on the flip side, they have data to show that if you support your child and accept them, you decrease risk. And I tell every um, uh, new hire at the hospital that we are in the business of decreasing risk. <laughs> so of course we're going to support young people and wherever they're at and use their names and pronouns here at the hospital because we want to reduce their risk. And, and oftentimes young people are coming to us, um, you know, at, in their, maybe their darkest and lowest time. So we would not want to, um, kind of, uh, bring up any feelings of, um, you know, being unsafe um, if we're not using or respecting their identities. So this um, this model from the Family Acceptance Project has seven steps. So we're going to go through each one. The first step is to just engage, approach, and connect with families and care caregivers by meeting them where they are. I mean, how many times have we heard that phrase as clinicians, right? We just meet people where they're at. 
families come, families of LGBTQ young people, they come on a range usually of from one end accepting to the other end rejecting. And it's a whole bunch in between. Um, so it's really meeting them wherever they are along that continuum and viewing each family as an ally. Now, that is very difficult, especially because I know we have biases as um, clinicians. We have, we, we have judgments. And if a young person is coming to you and they're saying that they're not accepted as a trans um, girl by their family, the family members um, say really awful things about them, really put them down, and it really hurts, hurts this young person and causes them distress. I don't know about you, but I'm going to be not thinking very highly of this family member. Um, and then when they come sit, they come into the session with you, how do you align with them when this young person has told you all these things which you know increases risk? What do you do? Um, I remember working with a young person once, a trans girl, and I did not view the, the father as an ally at all. I didn't value their traditions, their cultures, the family unit as a resource and big mistake because I lost the dad right off the bat. It, it took me some time to get him back and build that alliance with him, but I didn't view him as an ally. I immediately um, viewed him as uh, dangerous, uh, some someone who I needed um, to change in the therapeutic relationship and that that was my goal for him. Um, but everyone is at a different place. And, and I think we run the risk of losing people if um, we push them too hard. Um, uh, also part of step one is to start off from a place of protection. If a family is coming in highly rejecting, we reframe that behavior, the rejecting behavior as, you know what? You want your child to be safe and protected from harm and danger. And being an LGBTQ person can be dangerous. You don't know what your child will, will do in the future, if they'll be harassed or jumped down the street or called really awful names. Like, how do you protect them from that? So oftentimes what I've found in my practice is that families, rejecting families are coming from a place of fear and they're wanting to protect their child. So they say, nope, you can't be gay, you can't be trans, uh, because I'm protecting you, right? Um, and also, there's this idea that um, you can, I can accept you and support you as gay or trans or whatever, um, but only in certain instances and only in certain places. So um, I had a family that I worked with who um, the mom said, you know, I love you as my, you know, you're my gay son. You're, I accept you. You're wonderful. You're beautiful. I love you. And, you know, the young person was very excited about that. But then the, the child wanted to go to a family reunion and um, got in the car and was ready to go to see all his rel relatives. And the mom saw that he was wearing like the a very kind of openly gay t-shirt with like a rainbow unicorn on it and might even said like I'm gay on it and the mom said you cannot wear that shirt please go take it off it is not appropriate for this reunion now that's a mixed message so if a young person is hearing I love you and support you and not today <laughs> that can be uh, challenging for a young person. That's oftentimes I hear in a big disagreement between family members uh, or the child and the, and the the parents or guardians is, um, you know, I love and accept you, but, right, or not today or not in this way. So it's a big mixed message. I think it's important for us to catch and work with and really kind of expose. The second step um, in the family, helping families to support their LGBT child is, Letting the parents tell their story. Oftentimes, parents, guardians of LGBTQ adolescents need to grieve the loss of what they thought their child would be. You know, oftentimes if uh, a baby is born and the physician puts a blue blanket around it because the baby has a penis and they say, it's a boy, the parents begin to 
have this idea of what their child will be like. And it's usually straight and it's usually non-trans, right? Oh, my, my, my baby boy will get married to a girl and they'll have babies, they'll have the white picket fence. And then the young person comes out as not that. It can really disrupt the family, um, the family unit. So we really have to give parents some time to grieve that loss. And in fact, um, I'm not sure how you'd be doing family work in your practice, um, but I've often told um, family members um, separately, I said, yeah, I think you need to find your own therapist because, you know, you have stuff you need to talk about and explore, but in the family sessions, I, it can't be all about you. We, we're, we're working to repair the relationship, um, whatnot. Um, but, you know, oftentimes families will have to find their own, um, you know, their own help. Because um, oftentimes it's just too much for us to do, right? Um, the third step here is um, to give families respectful language to talk about sexual orientation and gender identity. Hence, you need more than an LGBTQ 101 training to do this work because parents are going to ask you questions about, my child wants to go on puberty blockers. What is that? Should I do that? Or um, my child says that, um, you know, he's on grinder and he wants to hook up with boys. What do I do? You know, first of all, you're going to have to know what puberty blockers is. Um, you're going to have to know what um, grinder is, right? You're going to have to know some of these terminologies and LGBT, LGBTQ youth culture and definitions. They're going to say, you know, I don't know what, um, you know, um, you know, any gender or, um, you know, panromantic or, you know, young people are so creative and clever. They're going to be asking you as a clinician to to um, define some of these. Not that I'm not saying that you have to know everything about LGBTQ youth, but you have to know some, and you have to know where to point them in the right direction to find appropriate, um, accurate, scientific knowledge. Right. So um, that's a part of, you know, really committing to do this work is because this is not just. LGBTQ 101, you have to have a good working knowledge, especially if you're working with a trans, gender non-conforming, um, non-binary young person. You have to give them that language. It's so important as a clinician um, because, you know, in fact, a, a little story about this is I was working with a family, uh, a family and I, I had a session with dad, um, just dad. And I said, Dad, I think it's time for you to start using your child's pronoun. Um, and I told them why and gave the dad some, you know, some, uh, some research that says that if adults honor and respect a, a trans person's name and pronoun, we reduce risk. And again, we're all about that. That's our business. Um, and I said, I think you have to be doing that, or at least thinking about it, or trying to incorporate it, right? And then in the family session, I brought the young person in, and dad used the name and pronoun of this kid, and the kid was shocked, right? But that was because I gave dad some information, right? And I was able to kind of contain it in a very um, safe space for him to do. Um, so that's step three. Step four is to educate families on how family rejecting, rejecting excuse me, behaviors affect their LGBT child. So I want to list some of these um, rejecting behaviors. Um, so th these are things not to do, right? Um, physically abusing a child due to their identities, obviously. Verbal harassment, excluding youth from family and, um, and family events for being gay. Um, like that mother did, um, or was trying to do with her child. Blocking access to LGBT friends, events, and resources. Blaming a child when they are discriminated against because of their identities. You got pushed into a locker. Yeah, it's because you're gay. That's a, a, a no-no. Um, that's going to increase risk. Um, blaming a child when they are discriminated against because of their identity. Um, or I just said that one. Pressuring a child to be more masculine or feminine. Telling a child that God will punish them for being LGBT. Telling a child that you are ashamed of them or that they will shame the family. And making a child keep an identity secret. 
So if families are doing that, they are eight times more likely um, for their child to attempt suicide. The child is six times as likely to re report high levels of depression. Um, the child is three times as likely to use illegal drugs and three times as likely to be at high risk for HIV and sexually transmitted infections. So I always call that step kind of the scary statistics. Um, and I've, I've really seen it work. I, I, I truly have where families have this light bulb goes off and like, wow, I did not know I was putting my child at risk. Um, and oftentimes families take a big 180 and uh, once they realize um, you know, that their child is at risk, and they're putting their child at risk. Um, the fifth step is to educate families on how supportive and accepting behaviors affect their child. Um, those are, let me um, tell you a few, um, that can reduce risk. Th these behaviors are talk with your child about their identity. Express affection, affection when your child tells you or um, you learn that your child is LGBT. Support your child's identity, even though you may feel uncomfortable. Advocate for your child when they are mistreated because of their identities. Require that other family members respect your child. Bring your child to LGBT organizations or events. Talk with clergy and help your faith community to support LGBT people. Connect your child with an LGBT role model, adult role model, to show them options for the future. Welcome your child's LGBT friends and partners to your home. Support your child's gender expression. And believe your child can have a happy and healthy future. Um, number six, or step six, is um, getting families to a point where they, they know that they can reduce risk just by making little tiny steps. Okay? Um, that even if they don't fully accept their child and is marching them, you know, down with them in the pride parade carrying a rainbow flag or a trans flag, like, we don't need that um, drastic improvement in one session. Uh, ideally, it would, you know, from personally, that would be great for parents to get to. But little steps make it big, big difference in reducing risk. So that's like this father who said, um, who used his child's name and pronoun in session. That was a little step, right? Um, and, it, you know, on the other side of that, I had a young person who was just really beating themselves up over their parents um, not accepting their identity. And was just, you know, and, and like adolescents are in their development, they it's hard for them to see into the future and to see kind of if they wait for certain things and outcomes that, you know, things will come in time. It's hard for young people to see that, so I get it. But I was working with this young person, we're talking about their family um, constantly, and the young person had this epiphany in the session and just kind of paused and said, I think I just need to give my parents some time. What an incredible, um, you know, place to be at for, this was a 13 year old, um, who, who found that they, it'd be better for their mental health, quite frankly, if they just accepted where their parents are and allowed them to be, allowed them time. Um, the final step is that, um, Oh, yeah, this is um, just repeating a little bit of uh, number six, um, step six is a little change makes a big difference in decreasing family rejecting behaviors. Um, so that is the um, from the Family Acceptance Project. That model is helping families to support the LGBT child. Um, like I said before, I would really recommend um, going to their website um, and downloading these materials because I think they're very, very helpful um, again, there's a practitioner's guide, and then there's a family guide as well, both in English and Spanish. I believe they also have a model on their website for working with families who are LDS, Latter-day Saints, or Mormons as well. All right, so the second um, family model I'll be talking about is the multidimensional family approach 
um, gender nonconforming families. So this was research from um, Mal um, Malpas in 2011 in the Journal of Family Process. Um, really, again, so the Family Acceptance Project is really LGBT in general, okay? Um, Malpas talks about, like, trans and gender nonconforming in general, okay? And there's some, I think, clear distinctions um, between the two. So the main um, kind of goal for this uh, model is that families who have gender nonconforming children need to negotiate interactions between two gender systems. Okay, this again, this is going to take time and therapy, right? But we want to get them to the point where there is a rigid gender binary that's imported from their family experience, their social experience, their cultural experience, that really tells them that, no, there are only males and females. Very rigid. And then the other hand, you have very fluid gender spectrum that's articulated by their child. So you you have two things that are both true. If you're thinking about DBT and dialectics, um, uh, that they're both true at the same time, even though they might seem totally false. This rigid system, gender system, and then the system that their child is expressing. Um, also in this model, it'd be great if we can get children to the point where they can both affirm who they are. You know, I am a trans guy. Great. And also understand the demands of a world mostly organized around a gender binary, right? I think young people are so um, ide I, um, idealistic, you know, bless their hearts, but they're going to most likely be navigating a world where it's still um, widely constructed by the binary, right? So how do you get them to be who they are and love who they are and, and express who they are but be prepared, right, um, to face a world um, that is organized around something that's very different from what they're experiencing. Um, for parents, uh, we need to get them to a place where they can both nurture their child's singularity as a, you know, as a person and operate as a mediator between the child's wish and the social reality, right? It's getting parents to a place where they can kind of help put their armor on their children and um, create that kind of nurturing um, space. Um, because if you've talked to a parent of a trans, gender non-conforming child, um, you will realize that it is hard. It's a challenge because I think a lot of you know, where, where our culture is, we understand the L and the G and the B, or well, maybe not B so much, but lesbian, gay, we get it. Okay, you're a guy who likes other guys. Okay, great. It's still in the binary. But when we start breaking that apart and we're talking about gender, parents get really confused. <laughs> this is why doing work with trans young people and their families really takes... Um, some skill and some expertise. The parent goal, uh, the parent's goal rather, um, for this model is to increase their acceptance of their child's fluidity and facilitate harmony between their child and the child's environment. That's really the main purpose of this model. There are five major components. The first one is parental engagement and education. So that's really kind of doing um, um, kind of a a gender assessment, um, if, if, if you may, from the family perspective, from the parent guardian. Inquire about um, what have their responses been to their child's atypical gender journey. Um, you know, this often is, includes shock and fear and anger and sadness and shame, and even disgust. Um, and that, you know, those feelings easily get entangled with their ability to feel acceptance and pride um, in their child, right? Um, it's also in this in this first step is providing psychoeducation of what it means to have a trans child. Um, you know, they're going to be asking you a lot of questions, like I said before, about gender transition. 
what is a social transition? My, my kid keeps saying he wants to do it. <laughs> You're going to have to know some of these things, right? Unfortunately, you know, I don't have time and this presentation really isn't geared to, to um, talk about these things in depth. Another um, point in um, step one is um, really providing part of the psychoeducation piece is providing families with the knowledge that, you know, gender nonconformity is a normal human expression and um, predicting the future of where your child will be is nearly impossible. We don't have a crystal ball. You know, we're not that type of clinician. <laughs> we can't see into the future. Um, so, and it's hard for parents to kind of sit in, in that ambiguity and be like, I don't know what that means. Like, will my child be a girl? Is my child a boy? Like, you know, and then you add on top of that non-binary. I mean, it gets really confusing for parents. Um, you know, but I think good psychoed would include, we just don't know trans trajectories. They're all over the place. I mean, humans are unique and they're compli uh, complicated and they're complex. There is no single trans, you know, coming out experience, right? People come out of many different ages for many different reasons, right? So just because you have a gender non-conforming child doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be a trans adult. I and mean, it could. We just don't know these things, right? The best thing we can do is simply love our children and nurture them for who they are and, and what their interests are. Because if we don't, we really run the risk of increasing risk. And we, I don't think any of you want to do that, right? Um, we'd have to really review the differences between sex, gender, and sexual orientation. This is going back to the LGBTQ 101 training, back to basics, which you can listen to um, after this, um, or even to pause this, listen to that, come back. Um, the presenter does actually great, great um, job uh, kind of breaking these things down. But we're going to have to discuss these. We're going to have to give um, good definitions and good um, you know, education to distinguish between those three. The second um, step is um, kind of the encounter and assessment with the child. So in this model, the first step is just getting information from the parents, kind of let them tell their story, grieve the loss, um, which, again, I'm incorporating that from um, the earlier family acceptance project model. But again, I think it easily um, uh, can be useful here. But um, in step two is really kind of creating that therapeutic space. It's kind of what we do naturally and do well, building a rapport, um, you know, and doing a gender assessment, um, assessing where there are, what, what their future hopes may be. Um, so, and again, doing a good gender assessment is a skill. It's a talent. And fortunately, we don't have time to really discuss them in detail here. But um, you know, I would encourage any of you listening to um, get further training on how to do that. Um, the third um, step is my favorite. It's parental coaching. Oftentimes, these parents are hopeless, right? They are confused. They don't even know where to start, <laughs> right? We need to coach them to a place where they feel useful again. And I've seen this all the time. I don't know what's going on. I, I don't know how to parent anymore. I have a, It's like I have a new child. Um, they're saying all these new things. I'm not useful again. So it's getting parents to a place where they can be a resource for their child. Again, this takes time. So part of the... Um, parental coaching model is we have to balance on one hand the really unproven influence that parents think they have over their child's gender, right? No, you are a boy. You are wearing boy clothes. It's it's unproven that's effective. And in fact, it creates a whole, whole mess in the family home. And, it, and again, it increases risk, right? So we have to balance on one hand that unproven influence, and on the other hand, the impact they can have on their child's self-acceptance, well-being, emotional and social adjustment, as well as safety. So it's moving past this unproven influence to say, listen, there are things you can do to still parent, 
You can be useful. Renew their sense of possibility. In this stage, I've seen parents go from clueless to activism. When they, when they finally are armed with enough knowledge of, of their child, and they say, you know what? My child deserves to use the correct bathroom at their school. Or, you know what? I'm reviewing the um, discrimination policy um, in my child's school, and they don't, they're not talking about sexual um, orientation or gender identity, uh, gender expression at all. And my child needs to be protected. So they march down to the principal's office and they bang their you know, hands on the table and say, I need you to support my child. Parents become useful again. They can advocate for their child, right? They can now make appointments for their child to find, you know, with a, maybe a gender-affirming physician or whatever. Like, they find that this purpose again. And when you see it happening, it's really, um, really amazing. Um, the fourth part in this um, step is the family therapy. That's when... After we've done the parental encounter, the child encounter, the family coaching, we finally get into therapy. And really the goal is um, to support a positive and functional family climate where parents can attune to the gender identity of their child and where in return, excuse me, they can respect the limits set by their parents. Right? So children are going to have to be included within this um, and to allow that, or to know that you are in mom and dad's house, and they have particular rules, right? And if they're going to love and respect you and support you, you use the right name and pronoun, you got to clean up your room. I mean, really, there's... Children have to realize that they are part of a family and that there are certain things that the, they might have responsibilities, right? Um the kind of the second goal in the family therapy is repairing re the relational bond. Um, and that's really kind of focusing on their attachment and using some of our attachment theory um, and incorporating that into, um, into the, the family therapy, which we'll talk about next. That's our, that's our third model. Um, so, you know, that's where the family work begins. Um, and that's really where the healing begins, but there's a lot of things that happen before that, right? to get them to a point where they can all talk. Um, and that, the last um, part on this model is finding, helping the family find a um, LGBTQ um, community for, um, for them. So I often um, direct um, families to PFLAG, which are parents and friends of lesbians and gays, and they've actually become very um, trans-inclusive. Um, but it's the nation's oldest and, and um, largest support network for our, um, for families. So you can go to pflag.com, you can click on Find a Chapter, you can type in your zip code, and you can find the closest chapter to you. Um, but some places might even have a specialty, and they might have a a parents of transgender individuals group. Um, so parents need that community. They need to be in social, um, uh, you know, communication, uh, support. They need all of that with others. So I think um, that's vital. And in fact, I would say 95% of our patients uh, that we discharge from the Polaris program have some sort of parental um support recommendation for discharge. All right, so the last um, model I'll be talking about um, is called attachment-based family therapy for suicidal lesbian, gay, bisexual adolescents. That's by Levy, Rusin, and Diamond uh, in 2016 from the Australian and New Zealand Journal of Family Therapy. Um, now, Two things. Um, one is that this research, I think this was a 16-session, um, you know, a therapy model, um, was only done with lesbian, gay, bisexual young people. However, I think this can really easily translate to trans, gender non-conforming people as well. Um, but 
again, just their research was done on lesbian, gay, and bisexual young people who are suicidal. Um, the, um, I think there is, if you Google this study, um, they, um, they have a case study that they publish and then their research too. So I think the case study is fantastic. The, the title of it is Attachment-Based Family Therapy for Suicidal Gay and Lesbian Adolescents, a Case Study. Okay, so if you find it, read it. It's brilliant. It's beautiful. Um, they go in, um, they talk about each um, step or each phase of the model, and then it has a script. Really, you can kind of see in session how the therapist did this work. It's really, out of all the, the articles that I've read, um, you know, as I was developing our Polaris program at the hospital, this one um, resonated with me the most. So there are five components. One is um, relational reframe. Um, um, I'll just start talking about that first. So that is um, really focusing on the hurt and disappointment that both the child and parent are both feeling. It's reframing parents' emotions, their criticism, their rejection, um, really stemming from a control or stemming from that they have a deep love for their child and they, they're concerned for their child. They're wanting to protect them, right? This goes back to the earlier model. They want to protect them. So it just, but it's coming out in, in a form of rejection, okay? Um, also reframing the child's emotions, anger, withdrawal as reactions to their own disappointment at their parents' response. Um, to their identities, and really that their suicidal ideation as an expression of hopelessness about the possibility of change. Um, and also the last part of the relational re reframe is um, it acknowledges both the child and parent's frustration um, and anger, but focuses on their mutual sadness about their emotional distance and longing to connect. I think that is so important to say you are both hurting. You both want to connect. You both want to love each other. There's something there. Yet what is happening right now is pushing the two of you away. Their attachment is ruptured, right? Essentially what it is. So it's kind of reframing their experiences, um, the first. Um, like I said before, um, Oh, I haven't said this before. <laughs> so the first is relational reframe step. Second step is adolescent alliance building, which I'm not going to get into. It's really building rapport. It's knowing um, your um, stuff around LGBT, uh, around trans, um, LGBTQ youth, right, and working with um, with them. The unique, um, you know, un the uniqueness of their identities, um, knowing what resources they might need, knowing about puberty blockers, you know, all these things. Um, so it's building that alliance. The third part is parental alliance building, um, which is really just connecting how the parent's past trauma history, or I'm sorry, attachment history might be influencing their parenting and the current problems and the disconnect between the two of them. Um, and it really just um, it also includes in this um, in this step just um, building rapport, right? And we do that really well. So I don't really want to get too much into it. Um, the fourth is where the magic happens. This is repairing attachment, um, and really, it's the goal of the, of the family is to have a corrective attachment experience, where the adolescent brings up emotional problems related to their parents. And the parents provide comfort, protection, and sensitivity. I was working with a, um, a, a father and a child who was trans. Um, the child um, was suicidal for many years and was telling dad, I need help. I need help. Dad just kind of pushed it off, brushed it off, said, you know, you're fine. Just, you know, be happy. Finally, the child came to us, had a suicide attempt. And um, the child said, I don't really know if I want to go home with dad. Like, I can't trust him. So there was a rupture in their attachment. Through the, our work together, um, dad said, I'm just um, really disappointed and I, I'm upset. I'm angry. And I let that sit there. I said, who, who are you angry with? 
and he thought about it, took a long pause and said, with myself, I have failed you as a parent. This was a, a turning point in their relationship because finally the young person heard from dad that he needs to do better, right? That he is messed up. Dad said, I love you. And I didn't know that this trans thing was this important. You know, I, I, I didn't know that you're really struggling. I, I, I want to be there. I will be there for you. And then they hugged and they were both crying. And it was just a magical moment between these two where they found, um, where they're, they had this corrective attachment experience. And after the session was over, I, I pulled the young person aside um, as I'm walking them back to their room. I said, so how did you, how do you think it go? And they said to me, wow, like, you know, I, I didn't expect my dad to, to do any of that. Um, I, I, I want to go home to him. I want to give dad another chance. So it was a really wonderful moment between the two of them. Um, and I think using all these models and, and the, the information I know and the experience I've had with young people, I set a stage. I set a, a therapeutic environment where the father could get there, where the father could say, I am angry with myself that I failed you, Right. So that was just a little, you know, a little story that I have that I think I always think about in doing this work is parents can get there. This was a father who was highly rejecting of their of his child's identity, highly rejecting, but acknowledged his shortcomings and, and decided that he wanted to do better. Um, and the very last um, part of this model is um, promoting autonomy, which is really shifting away from ruptures and on a challenges in adolescent's life. And the parents are really serving as that base of support. You know, it's, it's dad saying, throw anything at me. Let's tackle it together. I gotcha. I gotcha. Um, you know, that's where you want parents to get to in this model with their child. But again, a lot has to happen um, for any of this to happen. Um, so those are the three models um, that I think are just simply foundational to, to do this work really well. Um, it is providing good psychoeducation. It is um, setting the stage to have a corrective attachment experience. It is allowing, um, not allowing rather, it's um, getting parents to a place where they find themselves useful again, that there's a point to their parenting. Um, it's a challenge to have an LGBTQ child um, today, especially if, you know, this is new and foreign and you don't have your own support or a parent is not surrounded by an inclusive community. Um, there's a lot of barriers um, for parents, but I think we have such a unique opportunity to promote a healing environment um, that I, I really hope that, that these, that these three models can really benefit you. Um, and I encourage you to, to read all of, over them. And, um, you know, I think again, this is, this is really good foundational work. So, um, that really concludes my, um, my podcast to all of you. I wish you all of luck in your professional lives. Um, just the fact that you're listening to this, um, speak so much. We need clinicians out there who are going to be doing this work because we're only only going to grow. I mean, this community is only going to expand. There was a study in California that I, I read that 27% of Californian uh, youth, which is about 800,000, um, identify as gender nonconforming. Right? So the, we this is a, a train that's a fast-moving train headed to, really towards the unknown driven by queer and trans youth, they are at the helm. We need to jump on board this train. We have to, or else we're going to be left uh, aside. Our, um, uh, our client base is going to dry up and we're only going to be known as treating straight cisgender people 
where that's just not the reality anymore. Young people are telling us otherwise. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing that's happening um, with gender and sexual orientation um, that I really encourage you to jump on board the train too, because we need you and our young people need you. Um, and this will save lives. So best of luck to you in your future. Um, and have a great day. Goodbye. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.